Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, I'm Tom, and I make a podcast where I log in to celebrities' Amazon accounts. It's called... What a brilliant idea for a pod. There's no original pods out there anymore, but this genuinely is. Thanks, Ben Bailey-Smith. Anyway, it's called... This is good, isn't it? It's clever, this podcast. You should do more. Thanks, Kerry Godleyman. It's called... This is such a great idea, by the way. What a great podcast. Shappi Corsander, you're too kind. The podcast is called... It's biographical. You can get all sorts of information out of people. This is a very good idea. Thank you, Nick Helm. It's called My Mate Bought a Toaster. I'm going to listen to this podcast. Thanks, Alex Horn. Can you tell your friends? The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you know this to Um... <laughs> Chart music. Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode number six there of Chart Music. My name's Al Needham. I've got Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price with me and they are champing at the bit to get stuck into what has already become a glorious episode of Top of the Pops. Let's not fanny about, let's rejoin the episode in progress. Scotch Club and great new singer from then. Here's Laurie Singer, fame all over Top of the Pops studio at the moment. The tour's going really well, isn't it? Oh, it's going terrifically. Where are you off to next? Um, tomorrow, London, Wembley Hall. And then to Birmingham. And then continues right the way through, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, then to Brighton and then to Israel. Good. Have a good trip. Hey, a band who's done so well, number three currently with Boxer B. This is the debut single for Joe Boxers. We cut back to Powell with another guest, Laurie Singer, a former child prodigy on the cello who was the youngest person to graduate from the Juilliard School and then held down a musician and modelling career before switching to acting and walking straight into the part of Jeweler in the TV version of Fame. Pal tells us that Fame is all over the top of the pop studio at the moment and our singer, whose real name he actually knows, unlike Bates, about the remaining dates of the tour. She tells them they're going to Wembley Hall, then Birmingham, and then Israel. Powell expresses shock that the kids from Fame are actively getting involved in the Lebanese Civil War, possibly, and then turns to the stage, nearly ramming his microphone into the face of a zoo wanker who's got too close to him as he introduces Boxer Beat by Joe Boxers. 
Formed in London in 1982 when Bernie Rhodes, yes, him again, encouraged Dick Wayne, the lead singer of the New York rockabilly band Buzz and the Flyers, who were supporting the Clash on an American tour, to relocate to London and link up with members of Subway Sect, who were looking for a new front person after Vic Goddard had jacked in the music biz and started working as a postman. After an appearance on the Oxford Roadshow, they were signed up to RCA and landed a support slot on Madness's Rise and Fall tour. This is their debut single, which entered the charts in early February at number 86 and began a slow pull upward for five weeks, eventually entering the top 40 at number 32 three weeks ago. Then it soared nine places to number 21, and after they made their debut on Top of the Pops, it soared 15 places to number six. And this week, they've nipped up three places to number three, and here they are again to give the Top of the Pops floorboards another seeing too I mean chaps I was very glad to see Julie on top of the pops as I fancied the arse off her mm-hmm. did you yeah she's lovely oh man there was just <laughs> something about her and it's not her fault but she's got this face that I just really took against mm. she right. just looked she looks she's got this look this kind of like the standard the classic 80s waspy American Republican girl you know and that that's kind of her character. She might not be like that in real life. She probably can't mm. help it. Mm. But yeah, I just, oh no, she's, you know, basically Junior Nancy Reagan to me. Yeah, she looked like she could have been a mean girl. I think you're right. There was a little bit. I think she was the one that I fancied out of fame. Maybe some of us like mean girls. <laughs> uh, but there's some fucking Burke next to Peter Powell wearing boxing gloves. Yes. I just thought he's a member of the audience who's gone a bit overboard with it, but we soon find out why, yeah, don't they're, we? They're members of City Farm, aren't they? <laughs> Who are wearing boxing gloves because they're such fucking wankers. Oh, fucking hell. There's a TV show on later on tonight that uh, links in with this, but we'll, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was glad to see her there, but also very fucked off that her and Powell were prattling on over Dig Wayne's call to action at the yes, beginning of yes. the song, which is always a thrilling moment when that comes on. Mm. Yeah, say, man, you want to know about Sparks of Style, all that stuff, yeah. Yes. What the fuck are you doing talking over that? You talked earlier about the care and attention being given to this episode of Top of the Pop, Simon. This is where I disagree yeah. with you. All right, I retract, I retract. We'll see in this song and another song coming up soon, the Backroom Boys have fucked up big style. <laughs> Could maybe say that it's it's to do with it being a live episode that they just fucked up slightly there, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, uh, it does it cuts off one of the most exciting bits of the record. Yeah. So you yeah, just want him right looking down the barrel of the camera and just telling you to get up and stomp on things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this tune, fucking skill. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah, I, I was well into them. I really was. Yeah. It was it's what I wanted because like I was into Dexies and but Dexies had moved on from that kind of stacks soul kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like, well come on, somebody else come along, give me that. Mm, and here's mm, a band yeah. who for a little brief time delivered that what I wanted. They mm. even dressed as Dexies Mark One did, as yes. um the word that I kept seeing was Stevedores, which I didn't know what yes. it fucking meant. <laughs> little did I know it just it just meant dockers, which is something my town was full of, you know. Yeah. I mentioned that in a preamble that, that there are certain things in this episode that affected my dress sense and this is one of them mm. I, I actually because their look um joe boxers was kind of andy cap meets alf garnet a little yes. bit wasn't it they even had this little cartoon guy um as their 
kind of mascot on their record label mm. who had the sort of the hat and the big boots and all of that and um i i bought not um not a string vest um but i did buy a string t-shirt and <laughs> nice. uh and, and i i kind of repurposed my old rude boy braces and started wearing them again just oh. to sort of get that joe boxers look for when they when they played in um cardiff university i was down the front basically dressed to the best of my ability as as a joe boxer <laughs> I mean, there's an obvious comparison to be drawn between Joe Boxers and Dexes, but, you know, let's not forget that these cocky young upstarts were more than happy to have a pop at the governors. When Dig Wayne was interviewed by Smash Hits, he spoke about this very episode of Top of the Pops, and he said, We're for real. Dexes are a joke. Whoa. We were really looking forward to meeting them, but... And I'd advise you to brace yourself, Simon. Oh, no. At Top of the Pops, that girl, Helen O'Hara, turned up with a nice haircut, a nice jumper, and flared trousers. (laughs) Saxons. His emphasis, not mine. She goes into the dressing room and comes out with her hair messed up and dressed in rags. Even the bass player got a BBC haircut between rehearsals. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Simon. I knew that about Helen, not necessarily the flares, but um, I knew the whole thing that she's basically a nice girl out of a sort of conservatoire um, mm. who, you know, Kevin had persuaded to change her name and become this kind of gypsy fiddle player. Yeah. That's fine by me. It's a, it's a big performance. Because what, are you, are you telling me that in their sort of n- normal lives, the Joe Boxers go around with sideways baker's caps on and <laughs> well, apparently they did. hobnail boots? <laughs> apparently they used to go around wearing that shit all the time. They lived it, man. <laughs> I mean, whether they did or didn't, I don't really care. You know, pop is a performance. Performance and you know, mm. and Joe Box is a completely a conceit. They're completely a cartoonish band, mm. and that's mm. that's actually what appealed to me. Yes. You know, I I didn't think that these guys, these sort of fifties uh, throwbacks, who hanging around the sort of the, the front stoop of a brownstone in, in in Brooklyn or something. You know that it was it was obviously all 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 an act, and that's fine. That's absolutely mm. fine. Yeah, I mean, when they did this interview that was in Smash It's a month from now, the photo shoot took place on the, uh, I think it was Shadwell or somewhere like that. Right. And, you know, showed them going around doing their um, dock worker thing, kicking tin cans about. <laughs> yeah. Proper depression style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's actually, because uh, I've, I've got the album in front of me, Like Gangbusters, right? And um, it's one of those albums that um, the packaging must have seemed like a good idea at the time, but mm. it's got this um, this fold-out bit on the front. It's this little thing about the size of a fag packet. It's like a concertina thing with loads of photos of them Ooh. and also a stencil. But as soon as you put it in with the rest of your record collection, it gets ripped and no. it just gets battered, And but somehow it's still just about hanging on on my copy. But yeah, in, in all those pictures, they're, they're basically trying to look like they are in some kind of John Steinbeck um, adaptation <laughs> yes. or something like that. And it's fine, you know, pop, pop is a performance. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Oh, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's the, the idea they're trying to be all for real is kind of slightly embarrassing to me. I actually got, got told off by a Joe Boxer once. No! Yeah, yeah. It was uh, the drummer, Sean McCluskey, mm. who went on to do a lot of things. Um, He's sort of... Um, london music entrepreneur in many ways he uh, mm. ran venues like the leisure lounge and the, the one two three four festival in shoreditch and all this kind of stuff and he would make compilation albums and, and there was this compilation album he put out in the noughties i think it was of really amazing french punk and uh, i loved it i gave it a good review for the independent who i was working for at the time mm. and i saw him in the vip bar at brixton academy after a gig once 
and uh, I went up to him and I just said, oh, uh, Sean, I just want to say I really like that album you put out. And he said, yeah, well, well, why don't you just slag it off in the paper then? And I'm like, what? what? He goes, yeah, yeah, why don't you just slag it off in the paper then? And what it was, it turns out that because he had his fingers in so many pies, inevitably there was something that he was involved in that I didn't like. There was this band, a sort of sub-Libertine, sub-Baby Shambles band called the Casals that he right. was managing. And I slagged them off uh, in, in a live review. And I had no idea that McCluskey was anything to do with them. And mm. he just had the right hump about it. It really did. So I just sort of had to say, all right, mate. And I just had to sort of uh, just walk away. And, all right, fine, keep the know. devil in hell, mate. Yeah, keep the devil in hell. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't hold a grudge. Um, this is a fantastic record. I hear the DNA of glam in it as well as song. Yes. Yeah, I can definitely. hear a lot of... Well, it's stomping, yeah. isn't There's it? There's a glitter band stomp to it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's got that kind of hello, hello, I'm back again, or or even mm. hey, rock and roll by the Waddy Waddy kind exactly, of feel to it. Exactly, yes. <laughs> going but on. your mates of the Bellites were well into this. <laughs> they would have been. The Bellites would have been into it. And this, a lot of it's down to McCluskey, because he's, he's the drummer. He just gives it that mm. stomp, and it's great. Yeah. Yes. Rob March, um, out of the Joe Boxers, was actually in a 90s band called Earl Brutus. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, they, they were this band was kind of, hooligan edge kind of menace mm. to them and mm. they they drew upon glam rock very much sort of glitter band influenced so yeah. you know that that was that was definitely something that was uh, a, a big part of uh, of rob march's mm. thinking so yeah yeah i i think um there's there's more glam to joe boxers than meets the eye yes i love this it's not the one that truly delivers on the promise of joe boxers for me that has to be um, just got lucky for me, yes. which was massively important to me. That record, not just as a great record, but I, I, it was another chance, much like Kids from Fame, uh, well, the film at least, for subterfuge pornography, if you like, because the sleeve of the seven yes. has just got lucky was well filthy. It's <laughs> a bloke. It I think, he's on his. It's a bloke, isn't it? He's on his bed, kind of old looking. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does, look like, he does look like he lives near a wharf, you know. Um, yes. But he's looking <laughs> up at a wall that's just just covered in porny pictures really sort of old yeah, 50s yeah. betty page type pictures and you know yes. you know shy of things that you found in a hedge this was as close as you could get to <laughs> porn really in 83 <laughs> so yeah that record that, that record i loved that record just got lucky and I'd, I'd have been delighted to have seen this in 83 but as i mentioned before i'd have been aggravated in the extreme by zoos seeming dominance of everything you know how hard do they work to fuck this up well fucking i'll be on the six in front of the stage right who are a, a whole kettle of irritation to themselves they're also all over the balconies aren't they yeah wearing boxing gloves and all those all those punters and singing hearts and flowers <sighs> All Sorry, those, it's an Aztec camera reference. All yeah. those punters who've told everyone that they know they're going to be on telly, you know, watch me on telly tonight, you have to snatch glimpses of the audience in between the zoo wankers. I mean, what yes. you ca- can catch is wonderful, a true... 1983 mix of flashy colour and a kind of estate agent style. But mm. but what Zoo are doing is what they always do, ruining things. Yes. <laughs> and oddly enough, it's with a track like this. You know, you might think that to really illustrate how shit Zoo were, you need kind of a dour early 80s track maybe to illustrate how mismatched things were but but really you can see this mismatch here with zoo fundamentally zoo as i've said are not pop people 
With Pans People no. and with Legs and Co, you could almost imagine that they would go to tremendously fashionable nightclubs and dance to music and enjoyed music. Mm. Zoo always just seem like they enjoy dancing and don't really enjoy music. And mm. so they fabricate this enjoyment of music, which is what we can see in their performance here. It's like yeah. it's like someone singing to a song in a hot hatchback commercial. It's all yes. kind of very enforced smiles. None of them are ever relaxed other than in their own smuggery. There is a smile you can do to this song, to Boxer Beat, but it's a a faintly kind of resolute one, a hopeful one, but a determined one. Zoo smiles, they don't have any of that nuance. They're light entertainment people, and and it just is ill-suited, massively ill-suited to this performance. I mean, I know I've said zoo wankers quite a lot whenever I'm coming up to zoo. I am starting to think maybe that's unfair. I'm not saying they're not wankers, mm. but, you know, who's in control of things? I'm not sure Flip Colby is really in control of it. I certainly would have been thinking zoo wankers in 83. Maybe not wankers, actually. I probably would have been saying zoo dick splashes, because was, that was probably my favourite swear word at the time. <laughs> but they spoil this. They, they yes, try they their do. best to spoil it. The music's still there. When it, whenever it focuses on the band, fantastic. But yeah. everything everything Zoo are doing is bad. I mean, Dig Wayne's a fucking brilliant frontman. What a shame you can't see him. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. they've got four fucking Bisto kids in art pants. <laughs> Just in the fucking way. And whatever dance they're doing, it is not the boxer beat. What are they doing? It's mud, isn't it? The fucking mud rocker. Like it's tiger feet. Yeah, yeah. The mud rocker in 1983. The only other people doing that dance in 1983 are Hell's Angels at a pig roast. (laughs) And kids my age taking the piss out of people in flares on the street. Oh, man. And Helen O'Hara, probably. I wouldn't credit Zoo with the smart to realise what you've identified, you know, that glam rock side to things. And that's why they're doing this. It's mm. just wrong-headed, isn't it? And it, and it's kind of piss-taking. Yeah. They've got contempt for Pop Zoo and, and, you know, yeah, real problem. I mean, what you really want of this is, is a bit of yeah. Northern Soul dancing. Yeah, which is true, absolutely. Because it's, yeah. it's a Northern Soul yeah. song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But I mean, in fairness to Flick Colby, it would have been massively unwise to do a usual Route 1 dance-what-you-hear choreographer <laughs> because, you know, the lyrics of this song seem to imply that to do the boxer beat, you've got to be Jesus. <laughs> let the crippled ones walk and let the silent ones talk. Yeah. Let the blind so they see and the sad ones happy. You know, good luck with that flick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just that expression of confidence, isn't it, um, in the lyrics. I like it when any band comes mm. along, they've got their own theme tune. The first single's their own, yes. like, yeah. hey, hey, yeah. it's basically hey, hey, with the monkeys. It's like, hey, hey, yeah. we're the yes. Joe Boxers, this, isn't it, you know, which yes. is fantastic. <laughs> I'm still a little bit riled up by what you told me about Dig Wayne slagging off Helen O'Hara for being fake. Because yeah. basically, their look... I've just figured out where they must have got it from. It's Bugsy Malone, isn't it? It's from that yeah. um, for the boxing gym. So you want to be a boxer? Is that C? Yes, that's basically it. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in interviews out long after the event, you know, people have come up to Dig Wayne and said, "Oh, come on, Dexes." You know, people used to compare to Dexes. Is that is that fair or not? And he said, "Absolutely fair. We fucking love Dexes." Mm. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah. By the way, you mentioned Subway Sect, of course, in the preamble. Yeah. And they're one of those bands you're meant to be into, meant to care about. Yes. I've never been able to get there. They're one of these bands, like, I suppose television would be another one, who, if you're a connoisseur of punk or post-punk, yeah. you're meant to understand Subway Sect and their importance. But I've tried, and it's just it does nothing for me. How about you guys? I, I've never tried. He is one of those names, isn't he, Vic Goddard? He's one of those mm, names. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I should be into him. But I've never tried with Subway Sect. 
I'll give him a bash. No. I'll give him a bash. But I, the same goes for like the soft boys as well. And there's lots of bands from that period that I've not actually dug into them properly. Anything else to say about this? You know when somebody from a band who only had a couple of hits goes on and carries on making music, you sort of do you ever go on setlist.fm and think, I wonder if they play the hit from like, early incarnations? I, I was looking into that with Dig Wayne because he, he still does make music. Mm. Um, and I couldn't verify one way or the other, but I did find a YouTube clip of him and his, he's got this 50s rock and roll style band called Dig Wayne and the Chiselers, and they are pretty fucking mm. good, actually. Mm. They're not doing Just Got Lucky, which is what mm. you'd expect. Mm. Maybe oh. they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. But I think that bands don't owe longevity to you, right? They don't owe you a sort of a, a, a long a, a catalogue of, of, of great records, or indeed of any records. They are a one-album wonder, the Joe Boxers, and I'm mm. fine with that. They served their purpose when I needed them in this year, and they, you know, just flickered in and flickered out and that's mm, fine mm. so the following week boxer beat dropped three places back to number six the follow-up just got lucky got to number seven for two weeks in june of this year but diminishing returns set in and they finished the year with jealous love only getting to number 72 in october and they split up in 1985 and unbeknownst to the pop-crazed youngsters, Laurie Singer has already left fame after the second series, and this tour is her final obligation before she goes off to play Kevin Bacon's knockoff in Footloose. Down and down and down and down Yeah, absolutely. See, I've never seen Footloose, so that's why she doesn't get on my tits. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so good. We're off to Dunstable tonight. Having just finished the show, they'll be there. Carlo, welcome to the studio as well. Thank you. Um, the uh, reaction's been terrific on the tour, hasn't it? The reaction's been great. And how are the fans? They're great too. <laughs> the great British fan. Uh, you're off to New York back in about what, a couple of weeks? Two, three weeks. Yeah. Talking about New York. Talking of New York, here's a yeah. band from New York. If you like heavy metal, try this. Twisted Sister, Dee Schneider, and I am, I'm me. <laughs> Powell and Bates realign on the podium, flanking a man in a blue sweatshirt, green jacket and sand-coloured fisherman's hat. And after telling us that Joe Boxers are off to Dunstable tonight, Powell sort of introduces him. It's Carlo Imperato, who started acting at the age of 13, ended up on Broadway at 15, appeared with Fred Astaire in The Man in the Santa Claus Suit, and two years ago landed the part of Danny Amantulo in Fame. Not only that, but it's his vocals on the latest Kids From Fame release, Friday Night, which only got to number 89 a fortnight ago and was already slipping down the charts, but renewed interest in the kids has seen it soar <laughs> 31 places from 95 to 64 this week. 
Powell commences a penetrating interview <laughs> where we learn that the reaction to the tour has been great and British fans are great too, while Bates just stands there like a spare cock at a wedding. After we learn that Imperato is off home to New York soon, Bates says, talking of New York, and before the heart has a chance to fully sink at the thought of Jonathan King's Entertainment USA segment <laughs> taking up five minutes of our lives, we realise that it's actually a band from that area. Yeah, these interviews, man, they're not... It's not Weekend World or Frost Nixon, is it? It is no. not. These are barely even Vox Pops. They're kind of vopos. They remind me of when we were asked late in Melody Makers era that, we, you know, if we went and reviewed a gig, oh. we had to go and speak to three kids, you know, Mate. in the audience and ask them what they thought of it. And of course, they're always just, oh, fucking mint. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I more or less dodged that. <laughs> was that me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Skill. <laughs> if this was 1993... Um, you know the the Rick Blacksell era. The kids from Fame would be presenting this show on their own, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. And they'd probably make a decent job of it. Well, they're professionals. Probably more professional than Bates and Powell, to be mm. honest. Yeah. Formed in Ho Ho Cuss, New Jersey, in 1972, Silver Star were a glam band influenced by the New York Dolls, who did the New Jersey club circuit for four years. In 1976, they were told by their agent that if they didn't change their act and mix in some Led Zeppelin covers, they were going to find it hard to get bookings. To this end, they recruited Daniel Snyder, a Queens-based vocalist, as lead singer, and his songwriting contributions immediately pushed the band in a rockier direction. And when their demos were picked up by New York rock stations and put on compilation LPs, they developed a hardcore fan base in the northeast going on to sell out the new york palladium in 1978 without having a record deal after starting their own label and t-shirt company they attracted the attention of the uk music press and were encouraged by staff members of sounds and kerrang to relocate to the uk and land a proper deal and in April of 1982, they were signed to the indie label Secret Records, put out the EP Rough Cuts and the LP Under the Blade, and had their coming out party at the Reading Festival in August. In December of 1982, they hit the jackpot when an appearance on the tube with Motorhead brought them to the attention of Atlantic Records, who signed them up in early 83. This is their first single release on Atlantic and the first cut from the forthcoming LP, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. <laughs> it entered the charts at number 45 a fortnight ago, then soared 13 places to number 32, and this week it's nipped up three places to number 29, affording Top of the Pops the opportunity to confuse the fuck out of your dad this evening. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> much to discuss here i feel oh what an amazing performance this yes. is yes um, it is i absolutely love this performance it it does make you think of kind of the differences if you like between american glam rock and uk glam rock mm. I, I don't think it can just be delineated into you know one was about brickies in eyeliner and theirs was about teamsters in eyeliner <laughs> but um, yeah. i also don't think it's just as simple to say that uk glam was more artistically interesting the fact is the figureheads of glam rock 
of our first wave of glam rock. You know, Mark Bowling and Bowie moved on from those aspects of glam um, quite quickly. And, and what proved influential in the UK was more what those artists did after they move on. Apart mm. from uniquely, I would say, Adam Ant, that explicit glam rock sound wasn't really taken on by many UK bands. They were more interested in where Bowie bowie uh, went in a Ooh. sense you know but but whereas in the u.s <laughs> i think those glam rock bands and and bear in mind the u.s people would never have called this glam rock they would have called it glitter rock maybe or shock rock shock in the rock 70s the, yeah the term that d snyder used mock rock yeah uh, uh, clearly <laughs> clearly twisted sister are really fired up by the new york dolls yeah. and alice cooper mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how astonishingly ahead of their time visually the New York Dolls were is is, is here yeah. to see. But, you know, we've had warnings, if you like, that US metalers are heavily into that kind of first wave of, of UK glam rock because the year mm. previous we've had Quiet Riot's cover of Come On, Feel The Noise that yeah. didn't really make an impact over here is huge over in the States. It actually turns up on the Footloose soundtrack, I think, when Kevin Bacon turns up at school, he's playing it. Um, and... You know, a lot of these US metal bands ultimately were very into that simpler kind of anthemic bubblegum side of glam rather than the kind of identity questioning aspects. Mm. I would say that Twisted Sister aren't glam. They're metal, but a metal in a, in a way that's about to die. It's definitive hair metal. A year later, or a couple of years later, bands like Metallica and Slayer are going to take all this makeup off of metal in the yeah, US well, and, and sort of look more like, well, deliberately. To, to try and, in a sense, well, just look like the Ramones, in a sense. I'm not saying the Ramones are an explicit influence. And this era will will start getting looked back on for shits and giggles. But I think that's a tremendous shame. Yeah. There's a kind of ridiculousness and manliness to the likes of the bands that would come in this wake of, of things like Twisted Sister. So bands like LA Guns, Motley Crue, Poison, I don't dig them. And, and, and you realise just what a shot in the arm Guns N' Roses. They de- I know a lot of people have problems with Guns N' Roses, but they did genuinely feel like a genuine street-level, adrenaline-laden counteraction to that, that period of hair metal. But mm. I would actually argue that bands like Metallica loved Twisted Sister. And, and, and bands like this. I, I really miss this kind of band, the US band who dresses up yeah. without irony and, and with a real intent. I'd kill for a US rock band like that again. This is not US heavy rock that when you cross it with Springsteen, you get Bon Jovi. This is basically mm. metal. It's Nawabaham type anthemic metal in an American accent. But what I love is D. I yes. think. I mean, the whole band look amazing and the performance is amazing. But Dee Schneider, he's got this thing, whereas every band that came in their wake, your Poisons and your Warrants and your Motley Crews, they used makeup to look more airbrushed and pretty. Mm. Dee Schneider uses makeup to distort an already freakishly large and eventful face <laughs> eventful. that he's got. Um, he's got an amazing face. He'd look yeah. amazing without makeup, yeah. but he, he uses the makeup almost to push his own grotesquery yeah and it's just an enthralling performance yeah. I, I think this and and the, the band are just fucking on it of course they're miming but the way that the bass player slams the mic stand into his bass and and just mm. everything they're doing is fantastic i think it's, it, it this this episode man it's just highlight after highlight yes it is isn't it i mean d schneider if nancy spongen hadn't died <laughs> and had been kidnapped by the east german track and field association instead <laughs> She would look like D. Schneider in 1983. Put a yeah. fucking discus in his hand and run for cover. 
But he's just fucking going for it. Every single word yes. comes exploding out of him with such force. Yes. Um, it's a miraculous performance. And and whereas sometimes, you know when you see metal bands on top of the pops late 70s, early 80s, there's a sense with some of the audience members that they're kind of amused by it. I, I think mm. here they're not. Everyone is kind no. of blown away by this and bowled over by it. And there's people in the audience who you know are not going home and listening to Twisted Sister records. No. They're completely fucking into it. Yeah, the zoo wankers have cleared off now, aren't they? Yeah, everyone in that audience is clapping. Because there's no need for them. (laughs) This is possibly the scariest front-person performance since you woman out the rattles. It's up there. When they did The Witch in 1970. (laughs) I mean, if I was five in 1983 and I watched this episode of Top of the Pops, I'm I'm sleeping in my mum and dad's bed until I'm 30, I'm telling you. It would have shipped me up. I mean, this is a time when metal really does plunge into the horror bag. You know, around about this time, Ozzy Osbourne's doing Bark at the Moon and, mm. and wearing those really massive, scary fangs and coming out of a coffin on yeah. the tube. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that tube performance was, uh, it was quite a thing, wasn't it? Oh, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, their performance on the tube. Um, mm. I would urge anybody to go and look at that. The tube itself, what a fucking show that is. It probably deserves a deep dive at some point. But mm. yeah, they're doing it's only rock and roll, and you know, really, it's it's more punk than metal the way they perform it. And then halfway through, fucking Lemmy and the rest of Motorhead just come on stage and start jamming. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's 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 phenomenal. And that was important as well. Lemmy coming out, it was it was basically saying, look, all you factory lads in leather jackets, he's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's all right to like this completely. Yeah. The, yeah. Their Reading performances on YouTube as well. And right at the beginning, the fucking bottles and God knows oh, yeah. what's being thrown at them. But, you know, not by the end. No. I mean, and metal fans, it, I'm not saying they're a broad church as such, but, you know, you will find people who swear down by, say, Metallica or Sepultura or, or some band like that in the 80s. They've mm. still got a soft spot for Twisted Sister. I mean, I've mentioned before mm. that my, my daughter is slowly propagandizing awful awful metal to me so in recent months you know i've got into the fucking michael schenker group and the scorpions and and, and oh, I, I, I finally count out and i accept that dio era sabbath has its moments um and she's gonna work her magic with twisted sister i know it because she fucking loves them and and you know Does as a she? kid yes she'd be terrified but simultaneously the lyric of the song you know, that I can't think of anyone... I don't want to keep saying grotesque. It, it makes it sound like I'm being mean about him. I think D. Schneider's amazing. Mm. But the only similarly kind of shocking thing I can remember in the 80s on Top of the Pops would be something like Divine, you know? And, and that yes. just kind of, fuck you, I am this. It yeah. is an incredibly stirring thing to hear as a young rock fan. Sadly, Top of the Pops have fucked up again. <laughs> I mean, they've got rid of Zoo, which yeah. is a good thing, but Dee Schneider's obviously worked out this routine where he bends over and lets his hair cover his face before throwing it back to reveal the full horror. <laughs> that reminds me of when, you know, whenever Pigsy chances across a maiden by a stream in Monkey and he's slobbering over her and then she turns around to reveal that she's actually a slug monster. <laughs> but when he does that, his face has been obscured by the mic when he should be looking right down the barrel. Right. That would have been brilliant, just sitting with your dad and you know what's coming because you've seen the tube. And then all of a sudden the hair goes up and his face just fills the screen. Now, man, teas are going to be thrown up walls <laughs> right across the country in horror. 
I'm sulking, right? I'm sulking because you two guys have said everything I was going to say, and I've not been able to get a fucking word in because you're so righteously, correctly overexcited about Twisted Sister. But now I've got nothing. Maybe I should just say it anyway, should I? Just say all my yes, yeah, say my it bit. all. Well, obviously Neil is our resident metalhead, so this comes mm, a our bit metal more, guru, if yeah. you will. So, so it, it comes a bit more naturally to him to get on board with something like this. But just watching this brings out and probably at the time brought out my inner beavis and butthead you just mm. see it's like yes, yes! you know <laughs> yeah. it really is and yeah you're right the audience who are not a metal crowd are fucking no. loving it mm. yes and yeah he scared me he scared me d snyder and um i mentioned before <laughs> when we looked at sparks that pop can do many things it can instill many emotions and one of them that's underrated is fear is terror yes mm. sparks did scare me D. Snyder fucking terrified me. It's, he's all big and custody and yellow, it's, you know. He's and, and his lips are all kind of smeary and greasy, and he looks like he's gonna go on you. He looks like he's gonna mm-hmm. drip on you or smear on you somehow, <laughs> like sweat on you or something like that. And even the fact that he's wearing a corset, but he's got like a hairy chest and hairy armpits underneath yeah, that yeah. corset, right? <laughs> In terms of male to female drag performance. He's the anti-Boy George, because I yes, suppose yeah. you had two two main traditions in drag. You had people who were borrowing female beauty. They were borrowing mm. it to look aesthetically pretty. Or you had people who were doing it for comedy purposes, a kind of Les Dawson tradition. Right? Yeah. But this is a different thing. This is off to one side. This is using it to terrorise. Mm. Mm. Yes. It really is. And the rest of the band are, are, are pretty strong in that regard yeah. as well. The drum yeah. drummer looks like Frankenfurter. Uh, one of the guitarists <laughs> looks like uh, Rob Davis from, from Mud, who we've mentioned more times than I would have expected for a 1983 episode. But um, <laughs> in, in terms of the glam heritage though yeah they're very much more in the american glam tradition than the british one i can see that you could draw connections to people like sweet or so on but yeah alice cooper new york dolls kiss definitely mm. um and um hollywood brats if you know know them they're basically the yeah. west coast new york dolls and apparently mm. what happened with hollywood brats is that when they came along and made their album they had no idea that new york dolls existed wow. and they were just about oh, to launch and then mate. they then this band new york dolls comes out doing exactly the fucking same things like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> but yeah hollywood brats but more than anyone else um because i, I said that their performance on the tube was so punk what they remind me of is jane county Right. Yes. It's, it's that that confrontational drag. Yes. He is a very frightening presence, but as I said about Sparks, you're frightened of something, but you're also drawn to it mm. if you're a mm. kid. Mm. And I was drawn to this. Yeah. By the way, despite everything I've said about there being this heritage of people like Kiss and Alice Cooper, they they were still quite daring in terms of you know the macho world of metal mm. To, mm. To, yeah. to be how they were in the world. I only found out today that they used to go on stage without any makeup on, performing as Bent Brother. Um, they'd be their own they'd be their own support band and call themselves bent brother just to sort of like get a bit of practice in and sort of warm up before gigs which is which is amazing this performance it starts off with pyros which this is what i was getting at when i said that they pushed the boat out a little bit here top of the pops yeah i can't remember seeing pyros on top of the pops very often certainly not in this era yeah the only other one i can think of before this was wild in the country by bar wow really okay yeah the the flash pots and the song i mean yeah it's 
it's a assertion of self-determination. It's, yeah, it's, it's I want to be me, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or it's a, uh, Neil Diamond's I am, I said, or Gloria Gaynor's I am what I am, but somehow twice, yes. as, twice as camp as either of those, which is quite an achievement. <laughs> I mean, the first verse, right, it goes, who are you to look down at what I believe? I'm onto mm. your thinking and how you deceive. Well, you can't abuse me. I won't stand no more. Yes, I know the reasons. Yes, I know the score. I am and I'll be. I will. You'll see. I am and I'll be. And all of that no, stuff, right? No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. He is. He's him. Yeah. Um, yes, it's, it's he a standard. Is. It's a very standard heavy metal trope, isn't it? Men yeah, in their yeah. in their twenties and thirties providing the words for thirteen-year-olds to tell their parents yes. and teachers where to <laughs> stick it. Yeah, and like um, teeny libertarianism, yeah. isn't it? And and um, one of their um, later singles, uh, "We're Not Going to Take It," even more so. You know, mm. it's like, no, I won't tidy my room and do my homework. Fuck off, that kind of thing. Amazingly, I found out uh, recently, "We're Not Going to Take It" was not a hit in the UK. Only oh, got yes. fifty-eight. Mad, mad isn't it? Mad. It was a big hit in the state. Well. Number 21, yeah. but their biggest hit there. What a fucking record that is. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, we're not going to take it. The video in particular as well accentuates that kind of message that it's got. It's the most exciting record of its kind since school's out. We're not going to take it. Yeah, it, yeah. It's exactly yeah. pitched at the same market and has the same effect. Yeah. And the performance that he, he does here is even more extraordinary given, as Simon Bates has snarkily pointed out, it's it's all mind. Um, you wouldn't <laughs> fucking think it from the way Snyder and his yeah. band are just fucking committing to it. Mm, and, yes. um, oh, by the way, I, I've got to just because it's all part of the performance, I suppose. I've got to praise the guitars that his band have. One of them's got this this thing with pink and black concentric circles on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. really, really great. I, I'm not enough of a guitar geek to say what kind of guitar it is, but there's the other one. It's got a guitar that's all kind of jagged and pointy. One of those ones, <laughs> which is a very metal thing from that time. They look great. Yeah. I met Dee Snyder once. Ooh. Yeah. Um, this is at the uh, Metal Hammer Golden Gods Awards. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know whether you'll be um, more or, or, or less happy to hear that he wasn't a complete cunt. He's really lovely. Oh, nice. He's yeah. such a nice bloke. Because I, I was wary of him because I'd heard it and I don't know where this came from, this idea. There was this smell of bad politics hanging around him. Right. And I, mm. I don't know where it came from, but I've looked into it and uh, as far as I can tell, he's pretty sound. He backed Barack Obama. Um, he came out as pro-choice. He even dedicated... We're not going to take it to striking teachers at gig once. So you know, <laughs> he's, he's on he's on the side of the angels. And even though I would never say that I went on to be a Twisted Sister fan from this, I didn't go and buy the album or anything. No. It is just this sort of three and a half minutes where your heart's racing. You're just thinking, yeah. I, I I don't know what to think. I don't know what this is doing to me, but it's exciting. And I'm probably not going to become a metal fan or even a Twisted Sister fan. But fucking yes, fucking thank you. Thank you for this. Yeah. This is what I mean about the perfect Top of the Pops episode. I mean, do I like this single? Absolutely not. Wouldn't give it house room. Mm. Do I like the band? No, because they're <laughs> fucking grebs in slap. Am I being entertained? Yes. Yeah. Will I be talking about this in the playground tomorrow? Fucking yes. Incessantly. Yeah. yeah. And and I think the frequent thing that we've identified in Top of the Pops where it doesn't work, if you like, or, or the, the moments that are dull, are when Top of the Pops isn't a young person's show, you know, and it puts on stuff mm-hmm. for the older folks. I mean, Twisted Sister are not that band, you know. They are they are no. hammering in that generational wedge um, yes. with yes. their boots. I mean, you know, there's going to be a split in living rooms up and down the country 
you know, parents are going to be disgusted by what they're seeing. Yes. And kids are just going to be unfeasibly excited by this. And of course, you know, practically every Twisted Sisters song is, oh, we're going to do what we want mm. and you can't stop us and everything. And of course, Dee Snyder, he don't drink, don't smoke. <laughs> so you just think, well, what do you do, Dee? <laughs> <laughs> Must be something inside. Mm. Well, Dee Snyder's a Christian. This is the thing. Mm. Yes. Like, you know, when the PMRC were on his case in the 80s, he just, he wrong-footed them by saying, you know, I am a Christian. I adhere by those principles. Yeah, that's right. We're not going to take it was part of the filthy 15, wasn't it? Yeah. So, the following week, I Am I Me soared 10 places to number 19. And a week later, it would begin the first week of a two-week run at number 18. The follow-up, The Kids Are Back, would get to number 32 in June of this year, but it would be their last top 40 hit over here. But it wasn't like they gave a toss as they immediately became MTV darlings in America, leading to Snyder hosting the channel's heavy metal mania programme and then teaming up with Frank Zappa and John Denver to slap down the Parents Music Resource Centre in an American Senate hearing over a parental warning sticker system on LPs. They split up for the first time in 1988, reforming from time to time and finally calling it a day at the end of their 40th anniversary tour. And Friday night by the Kids From Fame soared 26 places to number 38 the following week and would get to number 13 at the beginning of May, the last top 40 hit by the Kids. And Imperato would be the only original cast member of the TV show to stick it out through every series of fame, making him Ken Barlow in a leotard. Pencil. An actor of my experience, you just get wrong dry. A podcast sitcom with Anna Crilly and Tony Gardner. I played, I played yeah. Edmund Gilder and he played Fanny Snatch. The Observer called it a lovely thing. Wonderfully funny, pitched perfectly, produced with a light touch. I'm not having any more of this. I need you to pull me off immediately. Heavy Pencil from Great Big Owl. Oh, that's wild. That's Twisted Sister. More rock from them in Nottingham tonight because they're leaving right now. Debbie Allen, the choreographer and teacher in fame. Welcome to Britain. Thank you. We're Good so happy here. to be here. Good. Reaction is terrific, isn't it? Absolutely. The fans are loving us and we appreciate all this wonderful love. What do you make of Michael Jackson? Michael is fantastic. He's right. one of us. Beat it. Pow! On the podium with assorted zoo wankers warns me personally that Twisted Sister are coming up my way right now before turning to the next guest, Debbie Allen, who did a bit of Broadway and sitcom work in the 70s before landing the part of Lydia Grant, a.k.a. Bangy Stick Woman, in the film version of Fame. And then had her part built up for the telly version. She's also the lead choreographer for both the TV series and the current UK tour, making her very much the mother hen of the kids from fame. After batting away another soft question about how the tour's going, it's great, love, etc. Powell asks her what she thinks of Michael Jackson. Alan replies, Michael's fantastic, he's one of us. 
What's she getting at there, chaps? Um, Is it a Todd Browning's Freaks kind of thing? One of us, one of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is something like really deeply unpleasant and intimate about uh, her chat with Powell. They're very close together, mm. looking into each other's eyes. It's like something well embarrassing that you see among teaching staff at the school disco that you then talk about the day after. Oh. It's really, really unpleasant. I don't know what she means by that. It's odd, that, isn't it? Mm. Well, because one of my black mates... One of your dark mates? One of my dark mates. <laughs> dark mates. And I can't remember which one it is. He told me mm. that he remembered watching this and punching the ear with glee because apparently this was around the time that questions about, you know, the ethnicity or oh, who Michael right. Jackson was trying right. to be uh, yeah, were, were, were circulating and he just punched the air and you know next day in the playground it was like yes he's, he's ours not yours yeah I can see oh, that see. yeah that makes sense yeah maybe yeah or could be some Illuminati child blood drinking shit going on <laughs> I don't know don't want to speculate the backstory of Debbie Allen herself maybe feeds into this she came up uh, against a lot of racism mm. in her early career there's there's a thing i found out about her basically she was denied admission to two different ballet schools because right. african-american dancers mm. were discouraged from ballet because they were told their body structure did not fit the preferred stereotype yeah. of a ballet dancer's body right so you can see how that might shape her wish to assert that a successful performer somebody like michael jackson is, from her point of view, one of us, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We've covered the bad king of pop many time and oft. The last time in chart music number 56, when Billie Jean was let out for a victory lap in the 1983 Christmas Day special. This song, Beat It, is the follow-up to that and the third cut from Thriller. It was written by Jackson when Quincy Jones asked him to provide one track for Thriller that embraced the majesty of rock. And to this end, they approached Eddie Van Halen to peel off a solo that, according to legend, was so metallic that it caused one of the monitor speakers in the control room to catch fire. (laughs) Rushed out on both sides of the Atlantic in the wake of the success of Billie Jean, it entered the chart this week at number 30. And here's the video which Jackson had to pay for out of his own pocket because CBS refused to chip in $150,000. The minge bags. <laughs> it was shot on Skid Row in Los Angeles with a supporting cast of loads of dancers and over 80 members of the Bloods and Crips. And this may well be the first time that we've seen it. Yeah. Because Channel 4 weren't doing their world premiere video release thing. Mm. Just yet. Well, as a kid then, you saw my... I mean, I I know kind of rock historians use albums as the kind of totemic textual demarcation point in someone's career. They did this album, then they did that album. For us kids, Mm. it was about the next Michael Jackson video, really. Um, Yes. You know. um, I mean, also, to kind of fight against the idea of it all being about albums, you know, for, for so many of us, this idea that, you know, Michael kind of cast off his past with Off the Wall and Thriller and had become a man, that's partly true, but it shouldn't erase really just how exactly how how big a part of our childhoods Michael Jackson was for all of us. You know, no matter how Mm. old you are, you have a different Michael Jackson who is part of your life. Michael Jackson's been in my life for about 10 years by this point. Yeah. I remember being at infant school in the playground with my mates of all races just saying, wouldn't be fucking brilliant if the Jackson 5 moved to our school (laughs) next term. 
and we got to be mates with them. And, you know, we could teach them how to play football and all this kind of stuff. Even then, at the age of five, the, the Jackson 5 were seen as this gloriously brilliant thing. Yeah. Probably even better than the banana splits. <laughs> yeah, which means that by the time he's releasing things like Beat It, um, we'd grown up with him. And, and we'd seen yes. how he'd develop, you know, what an amazing feline dancer and singer he, he'd become, which is quite a revelation. But it was also a bit like seeing a childhood friend making it. I mean, I would, I would argue, you know, yes. Billie Jean for me is the one. In off, a good way. Yeah, in a very good way. Yeah. Uh, Billie Jean's the one off Thriller, I would say. Mm. It's one of the greatest singles of the 80s. But Beat It is up there. And as with all the massive hits off Thriller, it ostensibly kind of has a subject matter. But what gives it urgency is the sense that no matter what the lyrical hook is, Jackson is really working on his own issues to a certain extent. This isn't a song, really, about resolving gang wars or getting more black music on MTV. The lines that resonate are things that, you know, the the lines about people who kick you and beat you and tell you it's fair. You can't help thinking now of Joseph Jackson, in a way. You can't help feeling that Michael himself feels you know this is the reason he always has to run away and escape and change and the whole album thriller has him in this world in between childhood and adulthood and b is a big big part of that and and you know when he sings throughout this album apart from the sappy stuff he's such a thrillingly tense one take singer yeah and the video is perfect for it i mean all the way down to the tiny details you know the 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 carom billiards tables instead of pool tables i'm glad we do Mm. get at least a glimpse of those in in this bit of the video that we see the idea of a a pool table where you couldn't pop the balls in a weird way adds to the tension um saggy pockets would have compromised that i feel (laughs) but yeah i mean it was it was single to single by this stage for for me as a kid with with mj and this blew my fucking head off um and eddie van halen's solo i know it's characterized this kind of oh look uh, white rock fans in the u.s look you can get into michael jackson but actually his solo it may well have caused the speaker to go on fire but it's not just a big ugly squawking metal solo air dropped into it it really no. fucking works and it yeah. and it's it's a masterpiece mm. i actually hate the whole narrative around eddie van halen's solo on this though this narrative mm. of, of the white savior essentially yeah you know, yeah who, comes along and makes Michael Jackson's music palatable. I mean, the cynical view of this record is that it's an exercise in triangulation and it's all about getting MTV on side. And maybe to some extent it was. Um, but it's got to be remembered, black people literally invented rock. You know, mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, tell yeah. Ike Turner or Chuck Berry or Little Richard or John Lee Hooker or Jimi Hendrix that this is somehow a novelty, you know, black mm, people yeah. releasing a rock record. Also, this is three years after Prince made Bambi, right? And Jacko and Quincy Jones were still recording Thriller when Prince's 1999 album came out, which, you know, a lot of people also see as, as a kind of exercise in triangulation, but it, was, it had, you know, definite rock elements on that and things like Little Red Corvette. Mm. So yeah, it, it it bugs me a little bit that that this um, this record is, is seen as uh, being um, palatable to to a white audience, and the, it probably bugs me because it's true. It probably bugs me because in America mm. that is absolutely what need what you know what was needed was mm. um, Eddie Van Halen's squealing solo, and uh, the main riff though it's not Eddie Van Halen; it's Steve Lukather from Toto. Who plays the main hook all the way yeah, through? Right, and and it is a fantastic record, and it probably did pave the way for the acceptance of things like "Walk This Way" by Run DMC, and then all mm. the kind of um, Rick Rubin produced Def Jam uh, rock rap of of mm. the late eighties. 
But yeah, it's it's a fantastic record and it's so right. And I just find it kind of weird. It's because we're not American. I don't think we have those kind of demarcations between music that they have. No. Mm. So it just seems weird where people say, yes, they smashed down the doors and this kind of stuff. And, and, we, yeah. and you know, we're supposed to thank hairy old Eddie Van Halen for somehow, <laughs> you know, paving the way. And yeah, like I say, I, I probably hate that narrative because it's true. I've mentioned um, in the preamble, and I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, ways in which this episode of Top of the Pops or bands on this episode directly affected my dress sense. I mean, there was Ooh, the... Yeah. It should be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there was the uh, the Dexys woolly hat and there was the, the Joe Boxer's string vest and, and uh, there may be another one to come further along in the episode. I nearly went for it with this Jacko thing, right? Right. And, um, <laughs> there's a market in Cardiff called Bessemer Road Market. Um, it's still there. It's it, Well, it was very near the old Cardiff City Ninian Park Stadium. It's uh, basically Grange Town on the way into Cardiff. And um, the sort of things they would sell there would be batteries that weren't Duracell or Everready or cassette tapes that weren't TDK or Memorex, but they were some mm-hmm. other shit brand you've never heard of and they turned out to be absolute dog shit. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the main um, attraction that, that sort of pulled a crowd in there was this guy selling pots and pans, um, kind of like um, a sort of DIY QVC before QVC existed. He had, <laughs> he had like a, a little tannoy system set up. Yes. Oh, he'd yeah. be going, and ladies, and he'd, he'd sort of talk up this fucking non-stick pan. He'd be going, and it's not £20. It's yeah. not £15. It's not £10. It's not even £5. It's £4.99, ladies. And you see people <laughs> sort of like almost fighting to get to the front to buy it. And, oh, yeah, this this market, uh, by the way, um, is immortalised for uh, John Grant fans. It's in the John Grant video, Chicken Bones, if anyone wants to know what I'm talking uh... about. I used to go there regularly. Um, my dad used to take me in there on a Sunday and you know I'd buy my shitty cassette tapes that didn't work um, but one thing that they had there was an exact replica of Jacko's red leather jacket no from, from this video wow. and it was selling I'm pretty sure it was 25 quid I don't know what that is in today's money um, but it was an amount of money that was almost unreachable to me at the time mm. but if I put all my pocket money together, my birthday money, my Christmas money, and maybe begged and borrowed a little bit more from my family, I might have been able to just about afford it. And I really fancied the idea, because I thought he looked so fucking cool in this video, Mm. of like getting that jacket, way too big for me, but pushing the sleeves up to the elbows, you know, (laughs) and just... See, nobody in my town was doing that. You were, you're basically either a rude boy or an ex-rude boy or, you know, whatever, just like a normal. But nobody's mm. going around dressed like fucking Michael Jackson. Oh. And I'm kind of, in a way, I'm relieved that I never did buy that jacket. But there's also part of me that would love to see a kind of parallel <laughs> universe timeline of how my whole life might have been changed by that item of clothing if I'd somehow put the money up and got that that Jacko jacket. I don't know. Because mm. because there, there are certain items of clothing that um, you don't wear them, they wear you. Mm. And if I had that jacket, I would definitely have to change everything else about myself to, <laughs> in order to, to live up. I'm not saying I was going to black up, but you know. Um, but apart from that, I would have to somehow live up to that jacket. I'd have to change my uh. whole persona. And yeah, I wonder. I wonder if maybe now at the age of 53, where I maybe could afford one, I should... <laughs> Just get one and see what happens. It'd be like, be like Billy's boots in that. Uh, yeah, Simon's <laughs> jacket. Yeah. 
just put it on and suddenly I can fucking I can bust a move, you know what I mean? Mm. You know, Simon, if you'd have bought that Michael Jackson jacket, would you have been compelled to go out and stop a fight between your school and the one next door through through the power of dance? Yeah, definitely. There'd have been us against um, St. Helens, the Catholic school down the road. And uh, so, yeah, it would have that element of, of the troubles as well. But yeah, I just, <laughs> I'd, I'd just sort of slide, I'd moonwalk into the middle of it and just go, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that'd be it. It'd be fine. And uh, everyone would just back the fuck off. And there'd, yeah. there'd be some kind of dry ice, there'd be smoke going around as well. And it would take place in a warehouse, obviously. Of course. And yeah, yeah, just uh, everything will be all right from then on. So in a way, um, the fact that I didn't buy that jacket is why the UK is in such a fucking shit state at the moment. Yeah. So Brexit is my fault, essentially. Yes. But, yeah, nice well, 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 I was hoping we'd get to this at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did have a jacket, I think it was later on this year, that had the same kind of shoulder pad pattern as uh as the one he's wearing but it was gray uh. it was your bog standard cna jacket or something like that but it had that padding on it and there was a couple of lads at my school who would offer me stupid amounts of money for the jacket and it's like really? no man i can't it's mine it's part of my look did you feel really different when you put it on did you just feel oh yes power coming over you i actually teamed that with a gray and burgundy hooped uh, t-shirt toweling of course because it was the early 80s some gray stay press it's the color palette isn't it that that burgundy and gray pale gray it's got to be pale gray and burgundy color palette yeah. nothing says 1982 slash three quite like that no parlay no parlay that's the color palette isn't it <laughs> It's, it's yeah, burgundy and pale grey. It's the Paul Young no parlay palette. And some grey slip-on shoes, which were extremely slip-on because I remember playing football one time and just smashed my head on the tennis court pavement. Yeah, my mate saw it was the funniest thing oh, ever. Man. They were just pointing and screaming and going, shame guy. No, I can relate. I mean, I've, I've done my ankle in many times on my giant Marilyn Manson-style stack-heeled goth boots. And, you know, I, I don't expect any sympathy from onlookers. No. It's the price we pay, isn't it? Yeah, the price you pay. <laughs> Bit of foreshadowing there. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I teamed that with white socks, of course, you know, because, yeah, Michael Jackson and that's the only socks I had. I-, I wasn't deliberately going for Michael Jackson. There was no way I was going to try that. But I look back now and I think, oh, fucking hell, I look just like Kel and Kath and Kim. <laughs> At least you wore socks. At least you didn't go the full espadrille Club Tropicana route, you know, because that's what every cunt does now. It's like no socks at all. Or those little kind of trainer socks that, you know, sort of for people who are embarrassed to admit they're wearing socks. Sock up, sock and be proud, I'm saying. (laughs) This video, right, you know, you've got this whole fight going on between the supposed Bloods and Crips. uh, Yeah. But they're all, a lot of them are dressed like their 1920s mobsters, which is a bit confusing. There's just one little guy, this really, really small guy who's got a fucking trilby and a long coat on, and he does look like one of the children from Bugsy Malone. Second reference no. for that in this episode. <laughs> but um, I like to think that the um, the videos, for, well, particularly the, uh, the video for this and the video for, for Thriller, link together in some way, and that uh, Jacko fails to completely defuse the fight between the two gangs, and mm. one mobster bites another one, and and becomes a zombie and then, <laughs> and then everything spirals out of control from there yeah I, mean, I do like the fact that the gangs are all multiracial I think that was nice yeah it's like they've gone hey guys we don't need to let skin colour divide us let's, let's all join together as one and then beat up those cunts because they've got a different <laughs> postcode to us <laughs> 
Well, I mean, we forget over here. I mean, I'm not saying the UK has pro- doesn't have problems with racism, but we do forget. You know, I mean, I, I take on absolutely what Simon's saying about, you know, this notion of the white saviour, you know, Eddie Van Halen coming mm. in and, and saving Jackson in a way is nonsense. But Jackson with Thriller is responding, I think, to, to kind of what happened with Off the Wall. Now, Off the Wall's a massive hit. But it's ignored at, the, at things like award ceremonies and things like that, apart from Motown yeah. award ceremonies. You know, it wins hardly fuck all at 1980 Grammy Awards. You'd expect Off the Wall to win a load, but, um, you know, best R&B vocal performance in the eight, 1980 Grammy Awards goes to um, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, but Record of the Year goes to 52nd Street by Billy Joel. And, and What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers wins the equivalent single award. I mean, that is the year, 1980, where Jackson explicitly goes to Rolling Stone magazine asking for a front cover. And they mm-hmm. tell him exactly what Mark Sutherland told me in 1994. You know, black faces on the cover mean a drastic reduction in readership. So I, I think he was, and Quincy Jones, were trying to battle it. But I think it, it's kind of, yeah, it, 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 it seems weird to us because I think we're in the UK. I'm not saying we didn't yeah. have problems with this. But over there, the lines were much tighter drawn, especially across the big swathe of the US that isn't on the coasts, you know. Mm. So I think this was part yeah, of that. The disco but, sucks states. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And there would have been loads of people going, oh, what's this fucking Widdly shit doing in the middle of a Michael Jackson song? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't know even why we're bothering to talk about this because the BBC have just cut the whole fucking Eddie Van Halen solo out, haven't they? Damn, yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah that, that bit can go. Fuck that. I think by this point we were well aware of what it sounded like through radio playing stuff like that. So it's not an yeah. issue. But yeah. Well, the fact that this came in at only number 30, that's mental. Yeah. yeah. But the general assumption would be, well, everyone's got Thriller. Which isn't necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case, but I mean, you don't apprehend year zeros when you're living through them in a sense. For so many of us, Thriller is, it's the first pop album, you know, that we had in a, it, it, for, yeah. for a lot of us. You know, when pop there begins with... Abba. Yeah, pop begins for us with that album. Yeah. It's massive. It's not exactly true that everyone had Thriller, but everyone had access to a copy or yeah. everybody knew somebody who had a copy. You know, yeah. like... My best man at my wedding and an old friend of mine, Neil Spahn, and hello, Neil, um, was a massive Jacko fan, and uh, he had um, uh, Thriller. And it's an album that um, I taped off him, and if I went round his house, it was playing. And it had this kind of afterlife that long after the hits and the singles from it had dried up, um, it just carried on being part of everyone's soundtrack from, you know, 82, 83, 84, 85, I would say, mm. right right the way mm. through. So th- there is that thing that you almost didn't need to go out and buy a Michael Jackson single mm. because no. it, w- it would find you. It was generally, yeah. the thing is, Thriller, it was generally reviewed pretty scathingly. And, and it nearly died a death. I mean, it's out in November 82, that album. And th- th- why did they choose The Girl Is Mine as the lead single off it? Yeah. It's such a bizarre choice. The f- it is, yeah. You know, which was the first song to be recorded for the album back in April 82. And maybe Epic just thought that's a play safe option, but it was too safe. And, you know, a lot of people just saw it as sappy. And a lot of people actually, when Thriller came out, it slammed it. it. It was no off the wall. There was no what rock with you in it. There was no don't stop in it. And, and kind of people didn't quite get with it straight away. It was regarded initially as a major disappointment, but eventually the singles, just the good singles. And I think Billie Jean's the key one just started breaking down all barriers, if you like. But we should remember that in 82, when it first emerged, I mean, for starters, it came out just before Christmas and it was very swamped by the Christmas market um, initially. Mm. It took 83 and these big vids to really enter our consciousness for it to start becoming the rampaging, um, you know, juggernaut that it did. So the following week beat it so 
soared 25 <laughs> places to number five and then spent two weeks at number three, its highest position. The follow-up, Wannabe Starting Something, got to number eight in June of this year and he closed out 1983 with two records in the top ten in November. Say Say Say, his duet with Paul McCartney spending two weeks at number two and Thriller getting to number ten. A few weeks later, Beat It formed the second slice in a Jacko Dex's sandwich when it usurped Come On Eileen as the American number one. And after Jackson allowed the song to be used in a public information film about drink driving, he was invited to the White House in 1984 to receive the Presidential Public Safety Communication Award by Ronald Reagan because there was an election on. Oh, you must be out of your tiny mind. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, our wonderful British newspapers were delighted to report that the kids were rebelling against Alan's iron fist during the tour, which reached a peak when Erica Gimple, who played Coco, got into a full-blown row with Alan over wanting a coffee break during a rehearsal. Then they accused Bangy Stick Woman of hogging all the limelight (laughs) and quit the tour, which is why she isn't here tonight. I think Debbie Allen probably also imposed a ban on dancing on cars as uh, as ours were too flimsy and shit and your foot would go right through them. Alan went on to become a producer-director and her character went on to be the principal of the school in a 2009 remake, making her the only person to appear in all three versions of Fame. for coming out. There's a lady called Tracy who was on this programme last week. You'll have seen her with Star Council. This time she's got her own record, her own hit. She's backed by the questions who wrote The House That Jack Built. Here's Tracy. Bates, surrounded by members of City Farm, is accompanied by a curly-haired young man in a black T-shirt sporting a digital watch with a calculator on it. Did you have one that played a tune? Oh, no, I never had one. I had one. Yeah, um, it was Can-Can. Yellow Rose of Texas. Bad Manners, Can-Can. Well, the Can-Can. Oh, anyway. of course, yeah, yeah. yes. It was the only Rude Boy-related tune you could get <laughs> on a digital watch. Why, it's Lee Carrera, a former graduate of the Manhattan School of Music, where Herbie Hancock, Harry Connick Jr. and Rupert Holmes went. And at the age of 19, he was cast as Bruno, a keyboard prodigy and sometime nemesis of Mr. Shirovsky in the film version of Fame. He stayed on for the TV show, chipping in on the soundtrack. Very much an icon of uh, of the show, wasn't he? Yeah, very much so. He kind of... um Went up in my estimation, because, I mean, this wasn't the only time that the kids from Fame appeared on Top of the Pops. That's right, um, yes. I remember him genuinely getting into the intro to Human League's Keep Feeling Fascination when he introduced that mm. song uh, in a later yeah. episode, and that massively put him up in my estimation. Good lad. Keyboard master recognises keyboard masters. He really looked like my best mate in my first year at uni, Tony, Ooh. who also made a big deal of his resemblance to Tim Curry in uh, the Rocky Horror Picture mm. Show with the, the, the curly black locks. And I just wondered if, if the fella from uh, Kids from Fame there actually ever traded up his resemblance and, and played Frank Enferta 
because he would have mm. been perfect for it, wouldn't he? Bates has nothing to say about Bruno. <laughs> so Bruno ends up asking Bates how he's doing. Bates practically ignores him, bar thanking for coming out to stand next to him for five seconds, before telling us that the next singer was part of the Style Council in last week's episode, and here she is with the questions who wrote this. It's Tracer and the house that Jack built. Born in Darbet in 1965, Tracy Young was a former switchboard operator and till girl at Woolworths who was on the dole in August of 1982 when she chanced upon the following article in the bit section of Smash Hits. Fancy yourself as one of the great 60s chanteurses? Well, if you do, and you're female aged between 18 and 22, Paul Weller's Respond Records are looking for you. Just whap off a cassette of your singing, a list of your influences, and a photograph to Respond Records, 45 to 53 Sinclair Road, London, W14. But she didn't bother to, ahem, respond, because she was still 17 at the time, I know. I I tried to write my way out round that, but I just couldn't. (laughs) After the original wave of applicants failed to provide anyone suitable, Smash Hits announced that Weller was still looking, and she decided to go for it, sending off a tape of her singing the Betty Wright song, Shira Shira, and after an audition, she was immediately snapped up, put on the Jam's final tour as a backing singer, and appearing on Beat Surrender, the Jam's last single, and Speak Like a Child, the Style Council's first. This is her debut single, which entered the top 40 at number 38 last week, and has soared 15 places to number 23 this week. It was written by Paul Barry and John Robinson of Label Mates The Questions, who were in the studio acting as her backing band in advance of their participation in the forthcoming Respond Posse Tour, which I am going to in just over three weeks. Ooh. Yes, Pop Craze Youngsters, this is my first gig. Whoa. Tracy and The Questions, yes. Quite jealous. When it was announced, The Questions were uh, top of the bill, but uh, Tracy got bumped up because, because of this, really. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, and I'll be watching this absolutely fizzing with anticipation that I am going to see actual pop stars right in front of me. Yeah. And in the end, they weren't because I ended up on the balcony at Trent Pollard, still not <laughs> believing that I'd been let in and, and absolutely terrified I'd get thrown out at any minute for mm. being very under 16. I look back at it now, my main memory isn't so much the gig, but who I ended up standing next to, which was Vaughn Toulouse, formerly of Department S, now in the main T-Pos, and he was the DJ on the tour. And uh, I didn't end up talking to him, but I was listening very intently while he was talking to some bloke about Respond and just picking up information. He said at the time that Paul Weller was the cappuccino kid, so he must have written the notes Mm. for Speak Like a Child. Interesting. And he turned out to be Lord Jim, who wrote the sleeve notes on the back of the house at Jack. Ah, right, yeah. We'll come to that. (laughs) At the time, I was the cuppuccino kid. Uh, I think I've already mentioned before that (laughs) at this time, I didn't know what cappuccino actually was, but I really wanted to drink it. And for some reason, I'd worked out that it was a a, a mixture of coffee and tea. (laughs) And I am full Weller sheep at the minute. Whatever Paul Weller says... I gotta do. I, I fucking do it without question or questions. Hey, I I hated coffee, which meant I wasn't really cut out for this oh, whole uh, sort of europhile mod lifestyle. Unfortunately, 
Um, but isn't that interesting that uh, both our first gigs are on this top of the pop? Yes. Dexies was my first one under my own steam, if we're not including the folk festival my dad took me to. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> I mean, all I can remember of the actual gig, the, the, the questions were fucking brilliant. Yeah. But it was rammed out with mods and jam twats who, mm. yeah. like me, were hoping that Paul Weller was going to show up. Yeah. I actually did see one of the speakers and it did have fire and skills stenciled on it, uh. which meant it was one of the jam's original speakers from 1977, which gave me a bit of a thrill. Yeah, I bet. But the fucking audience were cunts. Mm. There was a load of them who were singing, get your tits out for the lads after every song. And, and, and by the end, there was a chanting war. Half the people at the end were shouting, Trace, eh? And the other half was shouting, tits out. Oh, for fuck's sake. I was kind of wondering, you know, how the jam audience would respond to this because it's it's mad it's such a stylistic shift for something Weller's involved with I mean I I know the whole style council already were but but the jam are really not that long gone at this point and this shift to synths and um, drum machines and you know 80s textures on this song it's pretty total and complete yeah and from what I've read as well you know she wasn't happy about it either Tracy you know no um, about the kind of comparative lack of oomph this record has i guess but i think that's i think that's precisely what's good about it Mm. i can understand why she might not like that because her voice is like this this kind of wondrous relic from the 60s not not relic as in sort of sounding old but it really does sound piped in from the 60s yeah we're just over three months away from the jam's last gig and beat surrender and all that and, you know, 1982 was a year of kind of like discovery for me because it was, you know, my last year where I could buy jam records the day they came out. Mm-hmm. So I was absolutely full on into them. But kind of realising that being a jam fan didn't necessarily mean you were on the fucking right side of history. I remember when we went to Germany on the school exchange and we're on the ferry over and I'm wearing my brand new gift T-shirt, uh, which I got from the back of the NME. And uh, I'm wearing it for the first time, and it's and it's the cover of uh, the gift. Yeah. I end up just walking around, and I'm walking past one of the bars on the ferry, and it's full of jam lads who are on the way to uh, Amsterdam to to see a gig, and they go, "Oh, look at that lad! Are you going? Are you going?" And I go, "No, I'm, f- I'm 14. I'm on a school exchange." <laughs> so, oh, come with us, come with us. We'll get you in. And I'm sorely tempted, but I end up talking to them, and they're. they're saying, oh, you know, what's on this album? They're testing me out, and I'm fucking batting their questions back. And it's like, I know more about the jam than you do. And actually, mm. you're fucking horrible, because you, you want to start, you know, you want to start kicking off on someone. Let, yeah, let's go and find some Germans and beat the shit out of them. Mm. And by the end of the night, we ended up getting locked into our rooms, because it's gone completely fucking arms house in the bars on the ferry. So it's like, oh, man, jam fans are knobbins. <laughs> There's this famous photo, I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about, um, From uh, it's from October 1984, and I'm going to um, give a little plug here, because um, as we're recording this, just literally through the letterbox plopped the new record collector, Paul Weller Special, um, which I've uh, contributed an essay to, and I talk about this photo, but it's a photo of uh, Weller in Oxford on the 6th of October 1984, yeah. taken by Steve Pike, and um, it's in the courtyard of a pub. And he's surrounded by all these mod lads in their parkers. And he's moved on at this point. You know, he's very much in style council mode and looks very sort of tailored and uh, very sort of European. Mm. And you can just see this kind of 
maybe I'm projecting, but you can just see sort of look in his eyes of like, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm, I've still got this yeah. lot following me about. They just don't get it. It's a really, really important moment in Weller's career, mm. where actually probably the important moment is what we're talking about, the 1983 bit. But by 84, people still hadn't forgiven it. There were still yeah. these sort of bereaved mods, as it were, mm. you know, jam fans following him about in its kind of forlorn way. Yeah. I wasn't as invested in the jam as you were. I liked them the more soulful they got as they went along. Yeah. Which was basically when they were becoming the Star Council anyway. Mm. So when they're doing things like on the double vinyl gatefold of Beat Surrender, the cover versions of things like War and Move On Up and Stoned Out of My Mind, which pointed the way of where he was going. And I loved that. And and even sl- slightly earlier things like Town Called Malice being very Motown mm. and... Uh, you know, I suppose um, Precious being a, being a funk track and all of that. Yeah. So I I didn't have anything to lose. I I, I could very easily sort of kick off the jam bowling shoes and put on <laughs> a pair of Star Council tasseled loafers, <laughs> which I literally did. I was fully into this, and I was I was very ready for Respond Records. And we've spoken a little bit earlier about about that, and mm. it, it was a little bit of a letdown, I suppose, in the end. But just just the idea of it, at least. Yeah. I wanted in. I really did. And in, in that enemy piece, right, um, they're talking about Tracy. They say in the piece that we shouldn't call her the girl next door, mm. according to that piece, right? Which is what everyone called her, didn't yes. they? Because, but it's a, it's a weird phrase anyway, girl next door, isn't it? Because everybody lives next door to somebody, yeah. <laughs> unless you live on an island, I suppose. Um <laughs> So she's best case scenario, I guess, girl next door. Yeah. I mean, I live next door to my mate Andrew, the Metler, who had the air rifle. <laughs> and uh, on the other side, it was that woman who played Fool If You Think It's Over by Elkie Brooks 17 times in a row because she was having a breakdown. God. So those are my next door neighbours. Yeah. Know? But I, I suppose what, what people mean when they say girl next door is basically what FHM magazine was doing with that high street hunt. Oh, yes. To have. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? And Tracy did win um, a smash hits most fanciable female um, at the end of this year but the deal with Tracy was she was super relatable yeah she was two years older than me so she was like your mate's older sister who was too cool really to talk to a little squirt like you Mm. so you got a secret thrill if she deigned to acknowledge you in the street you know what I mean she was that girl I've seen an interview with her on the tube and she's quite funny and quite saucy in a carry-on way she does a big ones are the best joke. Mm. But it's also really clear how much of a genuine pop kid of 1983 she was. Yes. She, you know, she, she wasn't just this sort of, um, blinkered Wellerite. She was no. in the Spandau Ballet, um, mainly because she fancied Gary Kemp and she liked the Jacksons and Madness mm. and Culture Club and Paul Young and Wham and all that stuff. Yeah, her first gig was Paul Young. Ah. I read an interview with Smash Hits, I think it was a few months after this, where she said uh, they were talking about her influences and all that kind of stuff. And she said, well, Paul Weller told me not to say this, but uh-huh. my first gig was the Q-Tips. I fucking love Paul Young. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And and seeing her on the front of Smash Hits when she appeared on the front with Weller, it felt like yeah. breaking the fourth wall or maybe even holding up a mirror to us, the readers, because she was mm. one of us. She was a Smash Hits kid breaking yes. through this kind of invisible barrier and becoming one of them, a pop star. Yeah. I don't know if you heard this. This is getting a bit obscure, but on the 12 inch of The House That Jack Built, there's a track called Tracy Talks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is uh, some idiot with a sneering Mancunian accent interviewing Weller. her. 
Is it Weller putting on that accent? It's, it's Weller pretending to be Paul Morley, I isn't thought, it? I thought, is it a Paul Morley parody or just a generic Mancunian? And uh, yeah. so, so he goes, so, so Tracer, tell me. No, I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> um, how, how does it feel to be um, suddenly elevated from the dole queue lines into the world of the pop business? And she replies, it's great. It's fantastic. And I can hardly believe my good fortune. Now, obviously, <laughs> the whole thing is a kind of slightly heightened, exaggerated comedic setter. But that is the thing. She's just happy to be here. Yeah. And that's really appealing. I, I suppose it's similar to the rise of Sheena Easton a few years earlier via that mm. TV show, The Big Time. And there is a bit of the Sheena Easton's about her in yeah. this performance, I would say. There's also a bit of the girls from the Human League yeah, for me. Definitely. Um, mm. Who are also, of course, genuine teenagers plucked from the local disco. Yeah. So, you know, she, she's dressed in double denim, jacket and skirt with a collar turned up, fringe right down over her eyes in that bashful Princess Diana style. Mm. And she's in white heels. She is from Essex, after all, despite being born in Derby. Um, yeah. Picking her way through the balloons. And she does that authentic teenage disco dance which was previously owned by joanne and susan from the human league where you go step to the right bring your left foot alongside step to the left bring your right Mm. foot alongside repeat while your upper half pivots the opposite way and again you know that's a sight you would see at any provincial disco in 1983 and and it's as if and i always think this when i see the human league live even this to this day it's as if she's dancing to the hit single the house that jack built by tracy rather than performing it yeah. Mm. Tracy as well, IE. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite rare, I suppose. The only other Tracy with an IE that I knew of was my little sister. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. My mum and dad agreed that she was going to be called Sally, and my dad was going to the register office, but he went to the pub on the way there, decided that that was wrong, and changed the name to Tracy without consulting my mum. She was furious with him. There, there were a lot of Tracys around. I mean, I, I knew a lot. There were fucking loads of Tracys on my estate. <laughs> there were at least seven Tracys within a mum's shouting distance. <laughs> That's a great unit of distance, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> There'd be kids playing on the street, and someone's mum would appear at the door and go, Tracer! And half the fucking girls' heads would turn. Yeah, yeah. As we've already mentioned, there was even a lad at my school called Tracer, Tracy Unwin, a victim of Bummer Dog. Wow. The streets were filled with Tracer. How come Tracy is such a popular name in this period? I don't know. Was it Spencer Tracer? I wonder. No, it's fucking Thunderbirds, isn't it? Oh, is there a Tracer? There must have been some girl born in the late 60s, early 70s, called Tracy Island, who fucking <laughs> hated <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of Tracys in Barry. Big shout out to Tracy Pullin, Tracy Marsh, Tracy Duggan. There's a lot of them around. It was very much a name of that generation, and it became sort of very definitive, and definitive of something negative eventually. It was always Sharons and Tracys became a kind yeah. of short, shorthand for, again, and I hate this word, but kind of chav girls. Uh, but mm. we, we didn't use that word then. No, and I, I I hate that whole thing where where a name just you know a sort of a, a given name takes on that kind of meaning. So that I hate the whole mm. Karen thing, for example. I really I, I really do. Mm. Um, I think the the fat slags in Viz, if I'm not mistaken, were called Sharon San and Trey. Right there we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, From Nottingham. Yeah, but in a way, just the fact that Tracy had a very ordinary name did help with that again that relatability. Yeah, ordinary name with a bit of a twist, a little bit of a twist, an exclamation mark. You know, like like Wham yeah. and, the, and the Mighty Wah, yeah. Yeah, because when I bought this single, when it came out, um, I bought a Tracy badge as well, and I'm sitting on the bus and looking at it in my hand going, what the fuck am I going to be doing wearing a fucking badge with my sister's <laughs> name on it? So I gave it to her, she was well chuffed. 
No way I was doing that. <laughs> that bell next door motif, it was used a lot in this period. It's quite a loaded phrase. Mm. I mean, there's obviously approachability, as we've already mentioned, but there's also the hint of someone being easy to manipulate in a way. It's it similarly derogatory is the sort of coverage that Joanne and Susan in the Human League were getting at the time. Um, but here, what we see, as Simon said, is a normal person, really. The, you know, the white high heels are really key at this point. You know, white high heels like blue eyeshadow has become a way of kind of characterising townies. But mm. she's she's unashamedly herself and enjoying yeah, yeah. it. And the other sort of fantastic thing about this performance is that we see more audience members than zoo wankers. Yes. There's a good fair bit of the audience who seem to be who seem to really be split into two vague camps. There's those people who are you know, sort of perfectly happy to see what is trendy and fashionable in the 80s is fundamentally becoming identical to business wear. Yeah. So we see a lot of suits and linen suits. Mm. And fundamentally, those kids who don't think that at all, and, and, and even at this kind of new pop party, there's dissidents. There's the odd kid who, contrary to floor manager's instructions, I'm sure, are just stood there watching um, within yes. a few years. You know, that just wouldn't be allowed. And what I also particularly like in the audience is that that slightly old sense from the 70s in a way of pairs of kids um often girls who've come to this thing together dressed in the same outfit there's a particular pair of girls there who just chat shit through the the entire episode they don't even bother dancing but you can see them in the background and that gives this episode i think a sort of authenticity that i really like and and that kind of thing would disappear as the 80s go on the thing is her voice as well is just relatable enough while also being sufficiently pop starry. I mean, she isn't a bad mm. singer at all. You know, no. you mentioned Al that on that demo tape she sent in response to Paul Weller's advert in Smash It. She sang Shira Shira by Betty, right? And mm. at the audition, apparently, she sang Band of Gold and Reach Out, I'll Be There. And yes. you can actually imagine her having the chops for that kind of soul vocal, potentially mm. at least. But she also had a similar thing to. Millie or Helen Shapiro mm. or Lulu yes. or maybe Mary Weiss of the Shangri-Las or uh, Shirley Owens from the Shirelles because whatever other qualities their voices had in terms of technique or soulfulness they also had this teenage flavour about it this slight kind of citric sweet edge like lemonade with your vodka you know mm. and it works because she can sing but she kind of sings like she's singing along mm-hmm. again, like dancing along yeah. and singing along, and I like yep. that. Mm. Well, for me, it's actually it's actually a really good start to the label, isn't it? If the quality could have been kept up to this level, yeah. I mean, clearly, what happens with the label is that is that rock stars they often have the ambition and the pull to start a label, but but not the work ethic to maintain one. Well, all the time. Hmm. I mean, it's all very well wanting to start a Motown or a Stax, but, you know, to do that, you need a Smokey Robinson and an Isaac Hayes who can just sit there and pump out bangers. And Paul Weller, and to a lesser extent, Paul Barry and John Robinson, you know, they're keeping the good shit back for their own bands because yeah. that's what you do. This is it. And, yeah, and if yeah. you're running a label and being a pop star at the same time, you've just got to delegate a bit of fucking responsibility, really. You know, when, when Frank Sinatra mm. starts reprise records in 1960, he's not turning up to meetings or anything. No. He just starts it with intent and then he fucks off. He lays yeah. down some laws and then fucks yeah. off and lets the label be run by mm. pros the reason this label fails is obviously because in a way sort of too many pop stars are involved they should have said you know 
these are the constructs of the label. We want to put out this kind of music and then got the pros involved, but they didn't. Uh, has anyone else apart from Sinatra done it right? Well, you could kind of argue that Paisley Park worked for a bit mm. before Warner's fucked him over. Yeah. I mean, two-tone. Yeah. Doesn't that count? Yeah. But, you know, these things, they just tend not to have a longevity, really. Um and this is an, another example. Mm. I guess with Two Tone, that the, the specials were brand new. Yeah, they, yeah. It's not uh, an established act there, is it, who's launching it? No. So. Yeah, Paisley Park. I mean, Prince's protégés, there's usually only one or two decent songs that he bestows upon them. And uh, then he tends to use them as sort of um, testing ground for songs he wasn't sure about that he would then kind of pinch. So uh, mm. Maserati were originally, you know, it was like Kiss was for them originally. And then you've got yeah. something like Nothing Compares to You with Family and stuff like that, where... Um, if if the song seems to sort of fly well, it's like, thank you very much, you know, I'll I'll take that off your hands and do something else with it. You know, something these labels should have done that hip-hop labels do much, much later, actually, is just get artists involved, but purely on an A&R basis of kind of finding the new shit and leave the marketing and the production stuff to the pros. Mm. You know, I mean, if I'd have heard this, uh, I mean, I, of course, was not really cognizant of Weller's involvement in this, um, you know, uh, at all. Um, this was just kind of another... I, I was aware of Paul Weller and Style Council, but I had no idea that, that, that this was connected to him. Mm-hmm. I can't let this go by without mentioning that this song gives me a massive Jay Giles band uh, centrefold in Yes, worm, yes, um, it is, isn't it? Throughout. <laughs> um, I noticed that. You know. Shit, yes. Yeah. I mean, I've been swerving around talking about the song, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, there's there, there's a reason for that. I mean, I'm not I'm not a fan of the song. Tracy isn't really though either. You yeah, know? Mm. I don't know if you saw this. She did a Tim's listening party on Twitter. Yes, and uh, and she said as much. Here's what she said. She said, "Not quite what I had in mind as an artist, but actually, I love the track Paul put down. The strings and guitar and backing vocals, they were fun, and I really got into it until it was speeded up post vocals. Yeah, and had that drum machine part added." Nonetheless, what a thrill yeah. at 17 years old. So, yeah. Um, about that drum machine bit, by the way, I uh, I thought it was particularly cruel of Michael Hurl or one of his minions to cut to the drummer at that exact moment. <laughs> yes. So he has to do some really awkward miming to what is very obviously not played by a human. <laughs> so, yeah, Paul Weller's production really is, is his fault. Um, he was involved, sometimes under a pseudonym. Um, on her album, he called himself Jake Fluckery. And, and <laughs> just... Just reading between the lines, I, I agree with Tracy about the production. I, I think it's almost too pop, if such a thing can be possible. Mm. It is like eating ten bubblicious in a row and feeling sick. <laughs> <laughs> Tragically, this is, to the best of my knowledge, the only appearance of the questions on top mm. of the pops, which is a fucking shame, because they were brilliant. I loved them. Winners of the Young Group of the Year Award on the TV show Saturday Banana in 1978. <laughs> Played support to the Jam in 1981. Signed to Respond the same year. And the next single, Price You Pay, comes out tomorrow. And that's a fucking tune. It is brilliant. Um, their yeah. songs had a real emotional pull, a real soul dynamic to them. And mm. as, as a, I feel like a wanker saying this, but as, as a musical unit, they were, they were great. They're one of those very Scottish funk bands, mm. that tradition that ran from average white band through the associates and hip sway and love and money. And I suppose, 
hue and cry and ultimately wet, wet, wet and all of that. There's a distinct kind of bustling, urgent white funk from Scotland and mm. it's it's there in the questions. I, I really liked it. Um, it's a shame they didn't look very cool. This is, this is something that gets Well, me. they look a bit right. Rod, Jane and Freddie here. Yes, they? exactly <laughs> that. They, 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 they do look like presenters from Watch It, Children's ITV, you know. Yes. They're, they're pastels <laughs> and they're primaries and they're slacks. I always wanted them to look a bit more mod. In, in my head, when I heard the records, they were much better dressed than that, you know, because, yeah, mm. I mean, there were three superb singles that I owned. Um, Tuesday Sunshine, yeah. Yes. Price You Pay and yes. Tears Soup. Tears Soup's uh, fucking amazing. Uh, and it's one of those things that I, I sort of mentioned earlier where I knew that hardly any of my mates had even heard of them, which yeah. made them that bit more mine, you know? Mm. I, I played yeah. those Respond singles by the questions till they were worn as thin as flexi-disc, you know? And, yeah. and the, the Weller connection definitely got them a foot in the door with me. Obviously. Yeah. The other day, I, I watched a video for the 12-inch of Tear Soup by the questions. And it's hilarious how much they play up the Weller angle. The YouTube mm. clip starts with a bit of silent footage of Weller talking. And the yes. camera spends more time on Weller in the control room, yes. looking impassive with a... a a slightly partridge-like uh, lemon-coloured jumper slung casually around his shoulders. Yes. That, then it, it does on the questions. Yeah, I think that was from Switch, um, where where they were interviewed for the NME. Oh, is that what it was? I knew it was a TV show. Yeah, yeah. But it's a shame that, that the footage that's, that survives of, of the questions is very much riding on Weller's um, coattails. They were on the tube once, but I think this this Tracy performance is there is the only sighting of them on, on top of the pops. Mm. But um, on, on that Switch interview, Weller talks about Respond. Uh, he's big on the idea of teenage and on the idea of yeah. youth. He wanted, and this is the thing, he was so young himself, he was, you know, he was only 25 himself, but he, he said he wanted youth to get back its arrogance. And But also on, on the thing yeah. of being a label boss, he said, I've always had this power kick, the whip hand. And he's obviously sort of saying it tongue in cheek, but he compared mm. himself to Captain Bly or whatever. But <laughs> this song, it was literally a questions B-side. So yes. that backs up your point about, you know, saving the best shit for themselves. I looked at the lyrics and there's not a lot of meaning to be no. squeezed from it. There's a, a line about the house being a home for hatred. So it might be a, a very, very vague metaphor, a sort of metaphor, if you will, for um, <laughs> for for Thatcher's Britain and all that. Mm. But yeah, um, it, it's a shame that this is the only time we see the questions. But not that um, Paul Barry's going to care. He, he went on to have a really successful career um, eventually. Yes. He, I mean, he had he had some flop solo singles and some success in India with a dance pop band called Dreamhouse. But it's wow. when he became a, a songwriter for hire that he really struck gold. He uh, he co-wrote "Hero" by Enrique Iglesias and yeah. "Let It Go" by James Bay and "Believe" by Cher. Yes. So he'll never have to work again. He lives no. in the house that Cher built. <laughs> Tracer, the questions are craze. Big Sand Authority, Ocean Colour Scene, The Ordinary Boys. Being endorsed by Paul Weller is a fucking kiss of death, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. I know. I mean, As soon as you hear that Paul Weller's bigging up this new band, you think, well, they're fucked. <laughs> Ocean Colour Scene did all right for themselves. Not, not Eventually, yeah, yeah, by yeah. being Jethro Tull. But, but it took a while. <laughs> this is where tracing the questions ultimately fell down, because... If you didn't like Paul Weller, and a lot of people didn't, you you wouldn't give a mouse room. And if you were a, a, a massive jam head, then you'd be like, oh, this doesn't sound like eating rifles. 
Yeah, exactly. And you turn your back on it. There's only going to be a select amount of, of Paul Weller's fan base who are going to be full in on this. This is even more antagonistic mm. to the original fan base of the jam that even the Style Council were. Yeah. It's entirely plastic music. To a lot of them, Trace is just some bird. By the end of this year, Snap comes out, the jam's compilation LP, and um, there's a, a live EP inside the first 50,000 or something like that. And they do Get Yourself Together, the Small Faces tune. And Trace is doing backing vocals at the beginning, and she's just going, ooh, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, ah. And you can just hear this, <laughs> from the fucking audience. And you just think, yeah. Fuck's sake. Yeah, Bananarama got the same treatment as well. Shall we talk about the record sleeve? Um, the, um, the the Lord Jim thing on the back? Yes. So you've you've already uh, um, whipped the mask away, and we now know that it's Vaughn to lose. But... Um, mm. I suppose uh, he was to respond records what the Cappuccino Kid was to Star Council records. Mm. And on the back of the house that Jack built, here's what he's written. Go, 83, and there's no looking back. If this is to be the year of decision, then who's to decide? If youth clubs are for youth and discos are for dancing, why are you at home watching videos every Saturday night? Mm. If records are for selling and you're not buying, it's because you're not hearing enough to want to buy right and so and so from the land of a thousand young hopefuls from the influence of soul to the essence of pop respond records asks you to try tracy then decide lord jim Mm. and then underneath in her own handwriting tracy's written and this is just the start we bands and funksters tracy yeah yeah p.s don't buy those black and white brogues that are two sizes too small for you Al. <laughs> so the following week the house that jack built soared 11 places to number 12 and a week later made it to number nine its highest position the follow-up give it some emotion got to number 24 in august but despite being voted the most fanciable female in the smash hits readers poll diminishing returns set in very quickly and after her fourth single i love you when you sleep written for her by elvis costello only got to number 59 in june of 1984 she never troubled the chart again After being drafted in to provide backing vocals on the Style Council LP track Boy Who Cried Wolf in 1985, Respond Records wound down a year later and Young was picked up by Polydor, but she was dropped after her second LP was scrapped, eventually becoming a local radio presenter in Essex and is currently working for a homeless charity. My first gig. All right, Impulse Trace Youngsters, we're going to step back and catch his breath for a bit. So come and join us tomorrow for the final part of our evisceration of this glorious episode of Top of the Pops. Oh, one more thing before I go. Don't forget that we do a video playlist for every episode we do. This one's got about 200 videos on it. Everything we talk about, everything we listen to, everything to do with this episode, you can find there. So go on. Dip your head into the bucket of 1983. So, on behalf of Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price, my name's Al Needham, and if you're not staying pop-crazed, I'm going to tell Sir. Sharp music.
Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. (laughs) 